Well, I'm, I'm really honored to be here. I'm, I was honored when General Metcalf invited me to be here this evening. Uh, this is my second appearance uh, giving a lecture here, and I'm surprised they invited me back after the first performance, but they did for some reason or another. I, uh, I've had a wonderful career in aviation. Um, I've had wonderful opportunities because of the United States Air Force. I spent five years here at uh, Wright Field uh, doing some interesting work. There's people here in the audience this evening that I worked with that gave me the tools and the, the initiative and the support to do the work that I did. And without those wonderful guys and girls that were here at uh, Wright Field, I could have never done what, what I did. And I'll always be indebted to them. I, uh, I thought I'd try something a little different this evening and uh, kind of show you my progression through life and through my aviation career. Um, and uh, I'm going to try this out. Uh, Jeff helped me and uh, Dawn helped me today get these slides in order, and I hope they work out okay. Um, so if you're ready, I think I'm ready. This is going to be uh, the... Uh, the sky is my office. When I was a young lad, uh, I uh, dreamed about flying airplanes, and, but I did an awful lot of uh, uh, outdoors. I was very active in the Boy Scouts, which I'm still active, by the way. I, I really believe in the Boy Scouts, and I do all I can do to promote them. But I, uh, I did a lot of hunting and fishing, and then when I got to be about 16, I started racing uh, boats and hydroplanes, and uh, that was an awful lot of fun. This, uh, the name of that boat was uh, Homesick Angel, <laughs> and it frequently had me airborne. <laughs> when I, I, uh, I found out that uh, I had to uh, get two years of college before I could enter the aviation cadet, so I went to the University of Florida for two years, and as soon as I had my two years, I enlisted in the aviation cadet program. I went to Goodfellow Air Force Base and flew T-6s, and then I was assigned to uh, Nellis Air Force Base where I flew the P-51, and that's, this is Nellis Air Force Base on the flight line with a bunch of beautiful P-51s in the background there, and uh, what a wonderful airplane that was to uh, learn how to fly uh, during my be very beginning of my aviation career. I uh, volunteered uh, to go to uh, Germany because they were flying P-47s, jugs, over there uh, when I got finished with my assignment at Nellis. And, uh, and on, the, on my way to depart, to go overseas, the day I was getting ready to leave, the war in Korea started. I walked up to the first Army captain I could find. I volunteered to go to Korea. And the guy told me, uh, well, I can't do anything because you're Air Force and I'm Army. And besides that, uh, uh, when you get to Germany, volunteer over there. Well, we can't do any good for you. So I said, well, they really need me over there, and I'm a P-51 pilot, but uh, I was denied. So I went to Germany, and I flew P-47s, jugs. I was in the last P-47 outfit that was the United States Air Force, and that was a lot of fun to fly. Then we got F-84s. Uh, this was in November of 1950. You got F-84E models. And uh, I uh, had the, the wonderful opportunity to learn to, how to fly that wonderful airplane. As a matter of fact, I had my own airplane, number 209, that, uh, that my crew chief and I polished up as beautiful as they could get it. 
Um, when I uh, got finished, in, in, uh, but let me tell you what happened when I got to Germany. I walked into my squadron commander's office and I saluted. And I said, Sir, Second Lieutenant Joe Kidding reporting for duty. Um, he said to me, uh, Damn, Second Lieutenants. <laughs> that was his introduction to my introduction to him. And then I said, uh, Sir, uh, I'd like to volunteer to go to Korea. Boy, that didn't go very good. <laughs> he said, well, he said, you know, uh, we've lost uh, five lieutenants here in the last six months, and uh, you are another potential uh, casualty. <laughs> he said, let me tell you two things in this squadron. He said, first of all, don't get killed, and second of all, don't ever volunteer to leave my squadron again. <laughs> when I finished my tour in, uh, in uh, Germany, I volunteered to go to the Research and Development Command uh, because I thought that'd be a lot of fun uh, flying different new airplanes. So I fortunately got assigned to Holloman Air Force Base out in New Mexico. And I was in the fighter test section there. I arrived there in uh, 1953, and it was just a wonderful assignment, flying all different kinds of airplanes. And uh, the second year I was there, I volunteered to go to uh, get my parachute ready. So I went to uh, Channel Lake Naval Air Station, uh, and I made uh, 10 parachute jumps with the United States Navy. Uh, the Navy make jumpers do not jump rope jumps. Uh, they only jump free falls. So I made my first 10 parachute jumps was with the Navy getting my parachute ready. And this, by the way, is, was my first jump uh, at uh, El Centro. And the guy right here is a fellow named Larry Lambert, and Larry Lambert made the first ejection in the United States right here at Wright Field in 1946 out of a, a P-61. That guy right there that was first ejection in this country. And about a month later, uh, a fellow by the name of Vincent for the Navy did an ejection. But that was my very first parachute jump. At Holloman, uh, I flew uh, 11 different types of airplanes at one time. I flew L-19s and F-100s and F-104s and B-26s and C-47s. It was just the golden era of, of aviation. Uh, imagine flying 11 different wonderful airplanes at, at one time. I was one of the luckiest guys in the whole world. This was a formation of uh, 86s we had there. We had P-51s and 86s and 100s. And I'll come back for a minute about the 100. When I... Uh, one day our boss brought us in at the uh, fighter test section. He said, uh, we're looking for a volunteer to uh, work with Dr. Stapp on zero gravity. He said, I need a volunteer. Well, I had my hand up immediately. I looked around and I was the only guy who had his hand up. <laughs> I, that kind of bothered me, but uh, most of my life, everything I've ever done is done because I've volunteered. But he said, go over there and see what Dr. Stapp wants. So I go over there, make an appointment with Dr. Stapp, and I go in there, and Dr. Stapp was a visionary. Dr. Stapp was a man back, back in the early 50s that knew that we were going to go into space. It was a thought that no one thought was really serious ever going to happen. But Dr. Stapp knew we were going to go into space, and there were certain things that we needed to find out. One of them, which was quite important, was zero gravity because they had never done any real work with a, with a human 
to see what, how a human would, would respond to a zero-gravity condition. So Dr. Stamp said, well, I guess we'll go out and find out ourselves. So we got a T-33, which was the only airplane we could have at those days that was, uh, could carry two people. And we had a very sophisticated instrumentation for zero-gravity. We had a golf ball on a string. <laughs> I'd push on the pole and dive down. I'd pull up to a steep climb and then push on the pole. And when the ball would float, that was pretty close to zero gravity. Uh, one time, uh, they put a cat in there in the back with the guy. <laughs> and, you know, cats, when you, when you drop them, they always land on their feet. So they thought, well, you see what, see what happens on this case. So we went up and turned the cat upside down. And I think the cat peed on the guy in the back. <laughs> I, 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 he did not volunteer to go to that cat experiment again after that. But. And I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden, the cat comes floating up by me. So I push the cat back to the guy in the back. And I think he's the one that pushed the cat up to me. But anyway, I did over 500 runs in zero gravity. Uh, uh, they used the last 30, 40 seconds. And then you went from there to F-89s, uh, F-94Cs, F-100Fs, F-104s, and, of course, getting more zero gravity time in each one of these aircraft. Um, but there was a bunch of nuts in those days, too. We, we had one flight surgeon. This guy was so bad, you, if you walked down the street with him, you'd say, airplane, and he would throw up. <laughs> well, this guy ended up to be in my airplane. And he was throwing up before he took off. But in any event, after the couple of flights, he wrote up a paper, a scientific paper, that said that man will not go into space because he gets sick and nauseated. <laughs> and I, I walked up this guy and I said, hey, uh, Doc, uh, how come you said that? Well, he said, uh, it happens. A lot, a lot of people get sick. I said, sure. I said, I, I'm a pilot. I said, I love it. I, I enjoy it. I never got sick. Why didn't you say something about the fact that not everybody gets sick? Well, he said, you're a pilot. I said, sir, I think pilots are going to go into space. But there was a lot of folks around those days that had some really weird ideas, and this was one of them. But Dr. Stepp, being the visionary that he was, knew that we had to find out about that. One day, Dr. Stepp called me in. He said, Joe, he said, we have an experiment coming up where we're going to do a sled run. And he said, I need uh, a pilot to come in and, and take pictures of this on, for the launch. And uh, that's all he told me. And he said, uh, I need you to be... 5,222 feet into the runway at 85, at 455 feet per second uh, and accelerate. I said, Dr. Stepp, forget about all that. I'll, let me go out there and practice it. I'll figure out how to do it. So I go out there and I make uh, five different flights and came around, had a countdown, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, hack. Never hit it. And the day before the sled run, Stepp told me he was going to make the run. I had no idea that he was going to make that run. The distance between Alamogordo and Kirtland is 250 miles, and I'll tell you why that's important in just a minute. So it comes the day of this run. This is 1955. I come roaring down there, 350 miles an hour, and this T-33 right on the deck with a photographer from the back end, and the only time out of probably about 100 runs that I hit it perfectly right on time, right on airspeed, right on altitude, was that time when I had to do it. And I hit it right on the button, 
And that sled propelled him up to 614 miles an hour. And he was going so damn fast, I figured that the first bounce would be Albuquerque. <laughs> he hit the end of that sled from the, from the time he started until the time, and he coasted and stopped. It was 3,500 feet. He reached 614 miles an hour. He pulled minus 41 G's on deceleration. Uh, the Air Force at that time thought about 18 minus G's was, was the limit, but he pulled minus 41 G's. And he looked like he hit him in the head with a baseball bat, but he survived. And he did that because we were looking at ejections from, at high speeds. We were looking at deceleration for space flight. All of these were things, that, information that our Air Force needed and our space program was, was going to need. And Dr. Stapp knew what he was going to subject himself to uh, for the physical beating he was going to take. Uh, I've always figured that he's the bravest man I ever met in my life because he took that chance knowing exactly what was going to happen to him. Dr. Stapp also knew that when we went into space, we were going to have a small capsule, a small spacecraft. We had not determined the life support systems. We had not determined the communications, the selection process, the training process, uh, communications. We, we had really not got down to looking at how do you build a, life, a capsule to go into space. Well, Dr. Stapp came up with a program called Man High. And this program was investigate those things that Dr. Stapp knew that we were going to need to know to go into space. Once again, I volunteered uh, to be on the program. And my boss wrote me a little, Dr. Stapp asked for me to be on the program. And my boss wrote a note back to, Dr. to me and said, Kettinger, here's your approval. Uh, more guts and brains. <laughs> yeah, I think he was right. Uh, I had my own DC-3 all rigged up with a crew, and I went up, we chased, chased balloons and, and, uh, and with uh, creatures on board that gave the same uh, oxygen uh, intake and CO2 output. And uh, I had to go and get a new pressure suit. I had to go and get 24-hour claustrophobia test, uh, a lot of physiological tests. Uh, I must share one, one thing that they were concerned about the steroids, and so for about a week before the flight, I had to urinate in a bottle. And uh, I, I, from 12 o'clock in the morning to 12 o'clock at night, and then 12, uh, two, two different bottles. So every place I went, I had to take these bottles with me. <laughs> so we were in Minneapolis, and uh, one night we decided to go to a bar and have a beer. <laughs> so we went to this bar, downtown Hennepin Street, and uh, we had, had a beer, and I had to go to the bathroom. So I get up, and I take my jugs with me. And when I get in there, the place was full. Everybody was taken, so I just pulled my bottle out and used it. And it, this guy walked up alongside of me and said, My, ain't you fancy. <laughs> so anyway, went back. We left. We stayed at the Curtis Hotel. Went back to the Curtis Hotel. And all of a sudden, I realized that I'd left that damn bottle in that bar. <laughs> so I called back to the bar. The phone rang and rang and rang and rang and rang. Finally, the guy answered the phone. He said, yeah. I said, uh, sir, I said, uh, are you open? He said, no, I, I, I thought you were my girlfriend. He said, I'm getting ready to leave here. I said, sir, please don't leave. I said, we were a bunch of us sitting that right across the bar. There. Remember? He said, yeah. There's something very important there. I said, would you go over there and look underneath that table and see if there's a, a, a bag there with a couple of bottles in it? And he, he said, he, he came back and he says, 
Yeah, they're there. there. He said, you know, they look like they're full of pee. <laughs> nah, no, no way, sir. He says, I said, sir, would you please wait? I said, I, I've, I've, I've got to get that bottle. He said, I'm getting, getting ready to leave. I said, sir, I'll, I'll give you 20 bucks if you'll wait. He said, I'll wait an hour if you'll give me 20 bucks. <laughs> so I got driving back there, and the guy gives me the, the bottle. He says, you know, it, it sure does look like pee to me. <laughs> anyway, the next day, I turned him into Simon. I never did tell him what happened. I had to pay 20 bucks both ways. <laughs> but that was just one of the tests. But that's one of the little fun things that happened. And I've never heard that story before. I don't think I'll ever tell it again. <laughs> Finally, on the uh, 1st of June in 1957, everything was copacetic on the weather. And uh, we were given the go-ahead. So I get in the capsule at uh, the plant at... Uh, Minneapolis, they flushed it with the nitrogen out of the cockpit, and at four o'clock in the morning, they rolled me in the back end of a pickup truck and drove me 18 miles to South St. Paul Airport, kind of a really fancy launch vehicle that we were using. I get out there, and uh, I they launched me at 6.30 in the morning. Uh, mine was a test flight. Originally, uh, Major Simons was going to fly it. But Dr. Stapp said, no. He said, I want a test pilot in there. Uh, and uh, so I want Kittinger to fly that flight. So I take off, and right after, flight, right after take off, I find out that my VHF transmitter is not working. I can receive, but I can't transmit. And I had to use CW, and that's, that's a laborious way to communicate. So I get about 40,000 feet, and I realize that half of my oxygen is gone, and it's gone, it was depleting real rapidly. So... I had a problem there. So anyway, I get to 97,000 feet. The highest, the highest before that was 72,000 feet. I went to 97,000 feet. Uh, I was really the first man in space. I was a man that I was up there where the pressure was uh, about minus four or five millibars. Uh, the sky was black. Uh, it, it was an eerie sensation. But uh, I was in, in, in a, had a real problem because of the oxygen was all depleted, almost gone. So I had been valving, but the sun was coming up and heating up the gas, and so I would valve, but I couldn't come down because the balloon just wouldn't start down. And I didn't have very much ballast, which meant that if I got come down too fast, I didn't have, not have a means to stop the descent. So I was being very cautious about how I valved because I didn't have any extra ballast. So about that time, uh, Simons uh, says to me in kind of a, belligerent tones, come down, get down, come down. Well, it really ticked me off because I've been working for about an hour trying to get down. <laughs> and so I said, I tapped out on my Morris code. I said, come up and get me. <laughs> that, that blew his mind. That blew his mind. He turned to Dr. Stapp and said, my God, he said, he's got breakaway phenomena. I couldn't even spell phenomena, much less go through it. <laughs> but in any event, I, I, I came down, and I landed. And, and wouldn't you know it, I, I, the only piece of emergency gear I didn't have, I didn't have a paddle, and I landed in a creek. <laughs> and Dr. Stapp and Dr. Simons were there, and they stood me back up. This is a capsule, three feet across, seven feet high, and if it looks small, I'll guarantee it is. And the pressure suit is very confining and hot, uncomfortable. Uh, 
But that's exactly the way it was. This thing slipped down into the, the bottom canister there. And that was the uh, Manhai capsule. And it's on display upstairs down there at the uh, end of this space uh, exhibit. It had a 30-pound cap of dry ice on the outside to keep me comfortable. Uh, while I was there at Wright Field, let me back up just a minute. Uh, it was a very successful flight. After, after this flight, Dr. S uh, Simons and Cliff McClure made two more flights in that capsule, and it was a very successful flight uh, program. And the information that we gathered helped NASA when it came time for them to develop the Mercury program. Uh, and really, progress is made in very small increments, and, and we helped. We, didn't, we speed them up a little bit on what, how they came to the conclusion for the Mercury program. So what Dr. Stapp had envisioned was, in fact, something that was really needed. Uh, there's a very famous poet by the name of uh, Ernest Gahn. And Ernest Gahn says, hide if you can, run if you may. You are the quarry. Fate is a hunter. And fate is a hunter. Uh, in September of 57, I made this flight in June. I was taken off in an F-100 on a test flight. And right after takeoff, the airplane, the engine blew up, the airplane caught on fire, uh, the pole came back in my lap, I had no control of the airplane, so I had to eject at uh, 800 feet. I took one swing and landed, and I was elated that I was still alive because it was a very close call. And fate is 100 because a week later, Dr. Stapp called me in. He said, Joey, said, I'm going to Wright Field to be the chief of the Air Med Lab. And I'd like to offer you the opportunity to go there and work on escape systems. Well, I just had my butt saved about a week before that by a very good escape system, a very good parachute. And so I really felt obligated to go back and do what I could do to help fighter pilots and to give my thanks to those great people that designed that system, those parachutes. So I volunteered once again to go with Dr. Stapp to come here to Wright Field. I worked in the, in the biophysics escape division, and uh, I tested equipment. Uh, I tested parachutes, uh, rode a centrifuge, altitude chamber, and uh, this, this picture here is, a, is a, a jump we made in Lake Erie. We would go up to Lake Erie and jump, test water stuff, and we're also down to Key West and, and, and test equipment there. So I was very much involved in testing new pressure suits and parachutes that were coming along for the United States Air Force. Uh, this was one of my uh, pressure suits that I was getting ready to go up in. This is a, uh, I'll tell you a minute about the Stargazer program. The, uh, there were, we had a gondola here that had been designed originally for the original program, the high dive, and it was a great piece of equipment made right here in the shops. I think it was Building 5, I think, when it came. Building 5 was the one where the greatest artists down there, the greatest technicians, they had wonderful equipment. They could build anything you took down there. Well, they built this gondola, and it was not being used. I got a phone call from Smithsonian Observatory telling me that they had a guy that with a telescope wanted to go up, and would I take him up there? And I thought that'd be a lot of fun. So I'd go see Dr. Stapp. I said, Dr. Stapp, uh, uh, we've got a program possibly that would like to use our gondola. And Dr. Stapp said, well, Joe, uh, what will the Air Med Lab get out of it? I said, sir, we, we won't get a hell of a lot, but we'll get quite a bit, but we'll do a wonderful lot of good for basic research and science and astronomy. Said it's a it's a great program for the for the science and for the Air Force in our country. And Dr. Stapp said, "Well, I said even though we don't get a lot in the Air Med Lab, go ahead and do it." 
Now, Stapp is the only man that would have approved that program because Stapp was interested in science, was interested in technology, and even though it didn't help there at MedLab that much, he had the courage and the convictions that if it's, if it's worthwhile doing, let's go ahead and do it. So he gave me permission to go on this program. Uh, the MIT uh, developed a star tracker uh, and a, a uh, stabilization system. Uh, the Navy provided a 12-and-a-half-inch Castle Grain telescope. Uh, the program lasted four years. Uh, Kenny Arnold did the cameras on it. He did all my projects. And it was, it was a great program. Uh, unfortunately, uh, didn't have that much success with it. We went out there in 1962, and Bill White, who was a Navy astronomer, great guy, uh, we went up to uh, 87,000 feet above the Earth's atmosphere, looked at stars and planets without the haze and turbulence of our atmosphere for the first time. It was a phenomenal program. Landed near Lloydsburg, New Mexico at about 4 o'clock in the morning, and uh, I'll show you the, what it looks like. Now, that was like a crash job. Well, that was a very good landing, I'll tell you. <laughs> it was 8 feet across. We were very proud of that, uh, of that program, and we were scheduled to go back for the next flight. Unfortunately, Dr. Stapp had gotten transferred. So I went back out for the next flight, out to Alamogordo. Uh, we uh, closed up the capsule. Well, first of all, I kissed all the girls goodbye, closed the capsule, pressurized it, all ready to go. And all of a sudden, there was an explosion, and the balloon took off and left me sitting on the ground. It was really embarrassing. <laughs> so I went in and I called John Glenn. I, I was mad as a wet hen. I, said, I told John what happened. John says, well, Joe, I'll let you use all the NASA engineers to help you solve the problem. So you know, the one thing we worried about the most on the Mercury program, they had 46 different actuators in that program. We worried more about something happened, about to happen to you than happened to us in that capsule. So we were very concerned about that. So in any event, about six weeks later, I went back out for the second flight. Um, kissed all the girls goodbye, pressurized the gondola, sitting there, and bam, a second balloon took off with me sitting on the ground. Unfortunately, Stapp had been transferred by this time. Uh, I didn't have any support, and uh, General Schrieber said, Kittinger, why don't you do something else besides flying balloons? So that was the end of the Stargazer program, and as a matter of fact, that was the last scientific balloon flight ever made, man balloon flight. The last one ever made was that flight we made in the Stargazer. Unfortunately, we could have saved billions of dollars if we could have been able to continue because we could do research and astronomy above the Earth's atmosphere for pennies by comparison to what NASA ended up spending. But that's another story. So the war in, was starting in Vietnam. I volunteered to go to Vietnam because I was a fighter pilot. And I figured I owed it to my Air Force. So I volunteered to go to Vietnam, and I went over there and I flew B-26s. Um, we flew 75% uh, of our time at night. In the daytime, 25% at night. Uh, we carried ordnance on every flight. Um, all of us that were there believed in what we were doing. We were trying to prevent a small country from being overtaken by the communists. Uh, and we believed in that. We believed that they, they deserved a right for a, a democratic uh, life. Uh, I was there six months. Unfortunately, uh, a, the wings started coming off the airplane because we were really abusing them. 
and they grounded the airplanes in March of 1964. I came back, and uh, that was my first tour. Uh, about uh, a year later, uh, I, they had new airplanes, A-26s, which had completely different airplane, beautiful new engines, uh, a beautiful new wing. We never had a wing failure in the airplane. And I led the first eight of these A-26s across the Pacific into Nong Kham Phanom, where we were uh, stationed. Um, the, uh, uh, our job at night, on that particular mission was, was to fly at night over the Ho Chi Minh Trail to stop the trucks from running down that Ho Chi Minh Trail. We carried our own flares, but we also worked with other airplanes with flares, and uh, we, we killed an awful lot of trucks. Uh, we could only get credit for a truck killed if it burned. And a lot of times we'd stop a truck and there'd be diesel fuel all around it, but it never would burn. So we didn't get credit. But I'll guarantee you that uh, the, uh, the morale wasn't very high for those drivers going down that road at night. <laughs> well, one time the, uh, my first sergeant came to me and he said, you know, uh, Colonel, he said, uh, we, we, uh, we, we have a problem on getting rid of some of our uh, bottles. Uh, to tell you an example, uh, we had pearl beer and it cost 10 cents a bottle. And it wasn't worth more than that either. But anyway, we had, we had 10,000 empty pearl beer bottles. So I said, well, bring them down the flight line tonight. So they did. We put two pickup trucks full of pearl beer bottles, empty pearl beer bottles. I closed the bomb bay on the airplane and loaded two pickup loads full of empty pearl beer bottles on my bomb bay, took off, flew up to North Vietnam, found me a hunk of road and dropped that load right on the top of that highway and laughed my butt all the way back to non-comp for non. Once a week, once a week, I'd take me a load of pearl beer bottles and drop them over in North Vietnam. We figured that's pretty good use of a, of a product. We also laughed about those folks on the ground sitting there, what, what the hell are these people doing, you know? But we had a lot of fun doing it. Uh, that was a very interesting uh, uh, assignment I had there flying those A-26s. And then uh, I went over to Germany after that assignment, and I was with the 10th Special Forces Group for a year, made 35 jumps all around Europe, and then I volunteered to go back to uh, Vietnam. And this time I went back uh, in the F-4s. Uh, I was stationed at uh, Udorn, and shortly after I arrived there, I was made a squadron commander of the Triple Nickel. Uh, the Triple Nickel shot down more MiG than any other squadron there was in South Vietnam. It still holds a record uh, in the Air Force today of the most MiGs ever shot down. And I was a proud commander of that, air, of that squadron. We had 25 F-4s. I had uh, 350 men loading bombs and maintaining the airplanes. And I had uh, uh, 55 pilots and backseaters uh, to fly the airplanes. Uh, there's no better assignment for a fighter pilot than to be the commander of a, of a great fighter squadron like I had. Uh, after one of the missions, this was, the squadron, this was our squadron headquarters at Nankam Phanam. And uh, every, every fighter pilot dreams about being an ace. I mean, that's, that is the ultimate dream for a fighter pilot. And to do that, you've got to get five airplanes. And uh, that's all I, we all worked for. That's all we worked for was to shoot down MiGs. And, f and finally, finally on the 1st of March, 1972, I shot down 
a MiG-21 in combat. I only had four more to go. Um, so in, 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 in uh, celebration of my uh, shooting that big, they, uh, oh, by the way, this is Robin Olds. He's the, the greatest fighter pilot has ever been next to me, but a wonderful guy. <laughs> and he flew with a triple nickel, by the way. We flew mostly uh, about 80% was in daytime, 20% at night, and we, had re re we did refueling on almost every mission, particularly if you went up north Vietnam. Uh, here's what we did. We put my, they put my Jeep in the officer's club. The door width is, is smaller than that, that Jeep. And it took the civil engineers two weeks to figure out how to get that damn Jeep out of that club. <laughs> but we, we celebrated my med kill by putting my Jeep in the club. Well, that was the uh, 1st of uh, March. On the 11th of, of May, 1972, uh, I was flying a mid-cap over Hanoi, and all of a sudden I looked up and I saw an airplane look like a MiG. So I, we started chasing it, and I asked my uh, wingman, could they identify as a MiG? Nobody could. There was a Navy picket ship offshore called Red Crown, and I called Red Crown, and I said, Red Crown, you see that airplane up there? I said, if you can identify that as a MiG, I can kill it. And you know what he said? Stand by. <laughs> Which is what you would imagine they would say. So we chased that MiG and chased him. Now, you, you got to be very careful in combat, because first of all, the, the Navy flies with flying uh, A-4s, and that's a small little airplane, and it's got a platform that looks a lot like a MiG. And the Navy's always lost anyway. And I, 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 I didn't want to shoot down a buddy, even a Navy buddy. So I, I didn't shoot because I wasn't absolutely positive. You've got to be positive about these things. So I kept chasing that MiG, chasing that MiG. And uh, I called my wingman, everybody, if you can identify. I was almost about 95% sure it was a MiG, but I wasn't sure. And all of a sudden I heard, I was doing Mach 2, by the way. Uh, I was going as fast as I could go. And all of a sudden, my wingman calls up and he says, break right. Those are the worst words that you can ever hear in combat. About that time, a missile hit me. A MiG had come up my butt and shot me down. And one minute, I'm doing Mach 2. And the next minute, I'm ejecting out of an airplane that's tumbling all over the place. I ejected at Mach 1 at 18,000 feet. And my backseater went out before I did. And uh, I came down about 30 miles to the northwest of Hanoi. Uh, about halfway down, they started shooting at me. And I figured that wasn't very neighborly of them. <laughs> and I knew it was going to be a mess because it was right in the middle of a rice paddy. There wasn't a, there wasn't a tree within 500 miles. And uh, I spent all that training on how to evade and escape. And I wasn't going to be able to use one bit of that information I had. When I landed, I was piled on by about 50 folks just jumping on the top of me and uh, tore my uh, flying suit off. And uh, shortly, a, a militia man showed up and saved my life because one woman tried to hit me with a machete, and she missed. And then a guy tried to hit me with a machete, and he missed. 
And uh, the Lord was taking care of me in that, that deal because I, it was a very close call. Well, the soldier comes there finally and saves me. Walk about a quarter of a mile, and I had a real bad uh, injury on my left leg. And, uh, I, and, of course, I pointed it to him, but the guy just ignored me. Uh, they took me and they threw me in the back end. They hog-tied hog me and threw me back into a uh, truck. And about four hours later, I'm taken out of the vehicle and uh, taken into a room, still blindfolded. And uh, I'm sitting there um, and thinking, now, you know, ain't this a mess? Last night I was at, as at Udorn having a nice big thick steak and a glass of cold beer. And here I am in the, in the Hanoi Hilton. Uh, yeah, it was just, it was really a crappy day, I'll tell you that. And it was going to get worse. Um, pretty soon they came in and uh, asked me, you know, who I was. And I gave them name, rank, and seal number. And the guy said, well, you know, we, we want more than that. We want what squadron, what airplane you flew. And I said, sir, uh, the Geneva Convention only required me to give you name, rank, and seal number, and date of birth. He said, we don't believe in the Geneva Convention. He says, uh, you're not soldiers, you're criminals. And we, don't, we treat criminals differently than uh, soldiers. So, uh, but I had made up my mind I was going to stick with name, rank, and seal number because I figured that was a, an easy way to do it. And I didn't want to go off and make any compromises. So that was my stance that I was going to do. So I had a, my, my leg was really bothering me. I had a real bad injury, and I was really thirsty. And uh, I asked, uh, the third time they came in the room, I asked them if they could fix my leg and give me a glass of water, and they just laughed. And it was a mistake that I made because I told them I, told them I was thirsty, and that's, that's a bad thing to do, let them know that you were thirsty. So I'll make it short. I, I spent 30 days in the solitary confinement. Uh, I was tortured brutally. Um, I prayed many a time to, to die rather than to compromise my country and what I believed in. Uh, they finally uh, uh, broke me to the point that I told them I was flying an F-4, but they knew that anyway because they had a big pile out there in their rice field. <laughs> and uh, then they torched me for another couple of days, and they finally got me to tell them that I was in the triple nickel, uh, which they had the patch off of my flying suit. They knew that anyway. But they just did it to break me. They just did it to embarrass me that I could not stand up to their torture. Um, I, I did stand up a long time. But about the second week I was in there, I was really feeling bad for myself. And just before I went to the Air Force, my mother was a wonderful Christian lady. The, day, the week before I went to the Air Force, my mother said, I want you to memorize this psalm. I said, oh, mother. I said, yeah, it's important to me. I want you to memorize this psalm. And it was the 23rd psalm. And I sat down and memorized it because my mother asked me to. Well, the second week I was at Hanoi, I was really badly beaten up, thirsty, hungry, tired, discouraged. And all of a sudden, I remember that 23rd psalm. And boy, that just lifted me right up. It gave me strength. And I resisted for another week before they broke me because of that comfort that my mother gave me by that 23rd Psalm. And I'm sure that that Psalm is, was written by, for a POW because it says all the things that a person that's in, in, in turmoil needs to give him comfort. And then one day I was sitting there and I looked at the same wall. Every time they, they'd interrogate me, except when they were torturing me, I had to stand attention and look at a wall. I looked at that wall, I, I bet you 50 hours. 
And all of a sudden I looked and there was a cross inscribed on that wall. Some POW had inscribed a cross in that wall. And I looked at that wall for almost three weeks before all of a sudden I saw that little cross. Boy, that sure gave me a, a wonderful feeling of comfort. But after uh, 30 days, I think they thought I was going to lose my leg because it's really badly affected. So they put me back out with the rest of the POWs. Uh, that was quite a, a gathering um, because we, we were all the new guys. They, 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 they divided the POWs up into two groups. The first group were guys that were shot down before uh, December of 1971. These guys we call the Fogs. Funny old guys. Yep, you got it. And then the, the, the new guys, we, they call them FNGs, the guys that were shot down from December on. So they kept us separated. They didn't want us to give comfort to the old guys, and they didn't want the old guys to tell us how to operate. So they, they went all they could do to keep us separated for, for a good reason, so they were concerned. Finally, uh, and I must say, and by, by the way, John McCain was one of the fogs, and I got several chances to talk with him through the fence. Um, every one of us there believed what we were doing. There wasn't a single guy that was a POW that didn't believe in what we were doing was correct. Not one. We were there as soldiers. We were there to prevent a country from being overrun by communists. We were, we were there and doing a job that we thought that was, was correct. And 99% of us believed that we were there for a reason. And for us, it was, a, it was a crummy assignment, but we were there as soldiers. We were there as sailors and Marines and airmen uh, doing a job. Uh, we weren't happy about it, but we did the best we could do to maintain the uh, dignity of our service. Finally, uh, in uh, February of 1973, they signed the Geneva Peace Agreements between North Vietnam and us and the South Vietnamese, and, and they started releasing the POWs. They released the old guys, the Fogs first, uh, and then they released the later us FNGs who had been shot down later. And on the uh, 30th of March, uh, 1973, we were released. And it was the happiest day of my whole life. I mean, I thought I'd been happy before. I'd never been happy like that. When, when, when you're released from a communist jail uh, and you're back to freedom, boy, that, that is one wonderful feeling. Uh, we, were, we were treated uh, royally. All of the services did a wonderful job of taking care of us when we came back. Uh, we, were, uh, we flew from uh, there the next, uh, we stayed there four days at the Clark Field, and uh, finally we were flown back to the States. Uh, this is uh, a landing, uh, this was in Hawaii uh, as we were coming back. Here is a welcoming, this, now, by the way, this is three o'clock in the morning in Hawaii. And I walked by this one lady and she put a lay around my neck that was full of liquor bottles, little miniature liquor bottles. <laughs> And she gave me a great big wink. <laughs> but we had wonderful reception, wonderful treatment from everybody in America when we were released and came back. And we landed at, uh, <laughs> we landed at uh, San Antonio. 
And being the SR, the senior ranking guy, I had to make a statement, so I get off the airplane. And I look up, and there's a big commotion in the back. And I, I see these, these guys pushing, and the security police are holding him. I look back, and it's my first sergeant, Sergeant Roy. He was back there trying to convince him to come and see me. So I said on the microphone, I said, uh, Sergeant, would you bring that man up here, please? So they brought him up there, and he gets up there to me, and we hug and everything. And he turns around to the security police, and he said, You see, I told you, you son of a bitch, I knew him. <laughs> anyway, it was a wonderful reception when we came back. Uh, when we got back, they said, okay, you can have any assignment that you need, you want. Well, the chief of staff of the Air Force was already busy, so uh, <laughs> I'd, I'd never been to a, a senior college, so war college, so I volunteered to go to war college. And that's where I met uh, the commander of this wonderful institution here, Chuck. And uh, it was a wonderful year. And as a fighter pilot, I learned a hell of a lot. I, I learned in saying, Instead of saying BS, you say, well, that's incredible. <laughs> but it took me a year to learn that, I'll tell you that. <laughs> but we had a lot of fun doing it. When I got out of the Air Force, went back to Orlando, and I met this guy here named Bob Snow. He had a dining entertainment complex at uh, downtown Orlando, and he asked me to come to work for him. And it was a, one of the greatest jobs that a man could ever have in his whole life. Uh, we flew, uh, this is a a helium balloon. This is a launch from uh, Queen Mary parking lot, the first Gordon Bennett race in 1979. Uh, I flew, I, I won this race four times. Uh, I flew it 11 times. And uh, we flew these types of gas balloons all over the United States and in Europe. Uh, that was one thing we flew. Here, here's he and I flying a gas balloon. Uh, this actually was in Germany, the balloon that we had in Germany. That's a lot of fun flying those old gas balloons. This is a hot air balloon. Also, I did sky riding. We had a, a T6 and a Sirwin, uh, and I did sky riding. And uh, it, that's, that was an awful lot of fun. And he, Bob Snow took me in the bar one night. I'd never flown, never done sky riding. But I'm a fighter pilot, I can fly anything. But uh, we sat down at the bar with a bottle of wine. And Snow goes through all the letters, how to do each one of them, and draws them down and everything. So uh, I write, take it all. The next day I get up, I go up to do skywriting, my first skywriting job. So I was going to write Rosies. So I get up there, and I write R, and I forget the O. And I write an S, and I said, oh, my God. So I went back, and I drew a line through it. You know, there's nothing else you can do. <laughs> so when I land... Snow's on the phone. He says, Kittinger, I can teach how to skywrite. I can't teach how to spell. <laughs> but that was one of my happy faces. This is my wife, Sherry, with a beach stagger wing that we had. We flew all over the United States. One day, one time we flew the airplane from Orlando, Florida, to the Kitzbühel in Alaska. 95 hours. Oop, wrong way. Sorry. Uh, we had a 450 Stearman we did sky riding and banner toying with. Uh, now, these were my toys. Look at this. Look at this collection of toys. I had actually had six hot air balloons. I had two gas balloons. I had six airplanes. You can see in the back background there. 
I had 12 cars, Duesenbergs, uh, uh, Rolls Royce, uh, you, you name it. And I had all of these were my toys. You talk about the best job in the whole world, that was it. And I flew every day. A beautiful P-51. Our Grumman and Egg Cat, we had three of these that we did uh, banner toy with in skywriting. And that was a funner plane to fly, too. 600 horsepower. I also did a lot of test flying. Now, this is a fleet wing airplane. This airplane was built in 1930. And it looks like a, a boat. And that's what it flies like, too. <laughs> now, the next airplane is a, is a, is a Mo Taylor's aero car. And it looks like a car. And it flies like a car. <laughs> but I flew all, all these kind of airplanes, test flying them for Greg Herrick in Minneapolis. Uh, and that's an awful lot of fun uh, test flying those old antique type airplanes. Then we started barnstorming. My wife and I barnstormed in this airplane for nine years. Uh, we'd ride four people in the front cockpit and, the, and of course the pilots in the back. It was a wonderful old airplane. It was built just for barnstorming. And uh, then we also flew a, a chipmunk uh, this is the chipmunk that Steve Oliver flies in his acrobatic routine. And I called it a chipmunk on steroids because it had a 350 horsepower engine in it. Here we are. Uh, by the way, Sherry was the first woman to be on the winning team of a Gordon Bennett race. She was also the youngest co-pilot ever on a Gordon Bennett race. My grandson and the airplane. We had an awful lot of fun on that airplane. And in nine years, we flew 10,000 passengers in that airplane. Uh, one year, we flew, we went from Vero Beach, Florida to Tillamook, Oregon, 26 fuel stops. Boy, we had a lot of fun. But it was just an awful lot of fun, and the passengers loved it. There never was one passenger out of 10,000 that didn't enjoy that flight because open cockpit, it was just the way it was back in the 20s. And one of the first flights that I had, I had this little kid. The, the flight was about 10 minutes. And after the flight, this little kid walked up to me and he said, 10 years old, he said, Mister, he looked at me and he said, Mr., that was the best 10 minutes of my whole life. <laughs> but what we would do, every place we'd go, we would find a family that, that couldn't afford a ride. And uh, we would, sure, he'd walk up to him and say, the, the pilot would like to give you a ride. And every community we went to, we always found a family that couldn't afford it and gave them a ride. And I'll never forget the first time a guy walked in and I said, sir, wouldn't you like to ride in the airplane? He said, I can't afford shoes for my kid. So I said, sir, you get your butt in that airplane and your kids. And away we went. And we did that every time. And because we felt it was paying back the community. What, so our thanks for letting us uh, barnstorm there. But we sure had a lot of fun flying that wonderful airplane. And then when I was in solitary confinement, uh, one of the things that kept me busy was thinking about flying around the world in a balloon. I really I knew I wanted to do that, and I planned the whole thing, the balloon, the communications, the, everything, part of it, the weather. And when I got back, uh, I started working on that. Uh, I, I just had a hell of a, hell of a time getting a sponsor. Finally, I got a sponsor, and I uh, was cleared to fly solo across the Atlantic Ocean. This, this is the flight. Uh, this is the launch site at uh, Caribou, Maine. And just before this, we had the dedication. And at the dedication, I had a, a Catholic priest and a Baptist minister. And if I could have found a Jewish rabbi and a Buddhist, I'd have had them there too. 
because I figured I wanted all the help I could get flying across that ocean. Anyway, I took off, had a glass of champagne, took off, and I, uh, three and a half days later, I landed in uh, Caribou, Maine, uh, in Cairo, Montenotte, Italy. I flew for uh, 3,600 miles. Uh, I set a record. It'll be a long time before anybody ever beats it. Uh, I landed uh, in, the, in the Alps in Italy uh, at about 30 miles an hour, went into these trees, hit, and I got knocked out of the gondola and fell about 30 feet and hit the only rock within five miles <laughs> and, and, and broke my foot. But it was worth it. We had a, a, a ball on this, uh, this flight. And our goal was to set records and have fun, and, and we did both. But I must share one thing that happened. Remember I told you about fate as a hunter? I'm in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, two days out. It was 2 o'clock in the morning. I'm a little bit bored, nothing to do. So I called on the radio on 121.5, and I said, does any airplane hear me? And an airliner came back, TWA 101. I said, well, let's go to 12345. We went over there. And I said, uh, where are you? He said, well, I'm about 400 miles out from Heathrow, getting ready to start let down. I said, where are you? I said, well, I'm in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. He said, yeah. He said, uh, what's your name? And I told him, he said, you know, that's amazing because your chase crew is on board my airplane. Now, there's 400, aerpl- 400 people, airplanes fly across the Atlantic every day. I picked the only airplane with my chase crew on board that airplane. So Sherry got on the radio and Bob Snow and we talked for about five minutes. So you talk about a coincidence. Fate is a hunter. So that next day I landed in, uh, in Italy, but that was quite, a, quite an experience. The, first, the second day I was flying, I got boomed by the Concorde. Now, you, something will get your attention. <laughs> that will. I slept uh, two and a half hours in three and a half days. Uh, I was up to high as 22,000 feet, 20 degrees below zero. Uh, it, was, it was a very interesting flight, but I had a lot of fun because I made it. I'm going to go back now and uh, talk about the high-altitude escape portion of this. When I came to Wright Field, there had been some guys who, who, who was going to try to do escape in high altitude. Uh, they had their own uh, attack. They tried, but they, they, they didn't, it didn't work, and the program was canceled. And when I got here with Dr. Stapp, it, 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 was, it was canceled. So I went to Dr. Stapp, and I said, Dr. Stapp, I think I have a different approach, and i like to rejuvenate this project. So Steph said, well, how are you going to do it? And I said, well, I, I want to do it more toward the pilot, the astronaut. I want to do it that we're developing a new type of means of escape in high altitude. So Stapp said, go ahead and do it. And he, Stapp gave me the tools to, to, to accomplish this task. And without Stapp, it had never happened because he had the confidence in me and confidence what we were doing. Now, when you, back, if you remember back before World War II, the airplanes were kind of antiquated. You know, they were 10,000 feet, uh, not very sophisticated, not pressurized. And came World War II, all of a sudden, overnight, we were, had airplanes flying at 40,000 feet. We had fighters that were, were tremendous performance, but very high altitude. And all of a sudden, we started having people having to bail out that, that, that from very high altitude. And we were getting data that, that we never had before. We had people dying because they hit the ground and the parachute open. And so we knew there was a problem on spinning from high altitude. We did a study with uh, dummies, which you can see here. We take them up to 100,000 feet and cut them loose 
and record their free fall, free falling body. They were anthropomorphic dummies uh, rigged up just like a man. And we had RPMs as high as 200 RPM, which would kill a man. So we had demonstration that there was, there was, a, there was a real problem. And of course, the way to get this problem is to have a way to get down safely. Well, there was a guy here, his name was Francis Bopri, and he was, he was a genius. He was a, uh, a parachute genius uh, and a great guy to work with, uh, a real character, but a wonderful guy to work with. And he came up with a system called the Bopri multi-stage parachute, and we decided to use that to, to uh, uh, accomplish the free fall. I'm going to go through these slide real quick, and then I have a... Uh, I wore a standard Air Force partial pressure suit, uh, I also wanted to demonstrate to the air crews that we were giving them very good pressure suits, and so I used a standard pressure suit. And by the way, I had an X-15 full pressure suit. I made the only parachute jump of the X-15 pressure suit and parachute uh, prior to Scotty Crossfield's flight. Uh, I could have worn a full pressure suit, but I, I wanted to demonstrate that we were giving our air crews very good equipment. Now, my buddy Kenny Arnold was with us on all of these tests. We'd go out to Holloman. We, girls, I'm sorry, we spent an awful lot of time out there at Holloman, but we were gainfully employed. <laughs> this is a gondola, an open gondola. Um, this was actually, uh, this was out the truth of, near truth of consequences, the first jump. Balloon in the background with a parachute, open parachute. George Post, the backup jumper, my friend uh, on the right there. At the bottom of the balloon, there's a parachute. It's open. After I jump, they send a command, cut the balloon away, and the gondola comes down on the parachute. At, in those days, I weighed 160 pounds, and with all the equipment, I weighed 320 pounds. On my left wrist, I had an altimeter stopwatch because, and a mirror so I could look up and see because you can't look up with it because of the pressure suit helmet. Uh, Kenny had cameras mounted on the side to document it, and you'll see some of those pictures in a little bit. And in the kit, I also had a camera. And this was made by a geographic camera from 102,800 feet. This is the White Sands at, at Holloman. And this was uh, President Eisenhower being awarded the Harmon Trophy. And back in the background there is uh, General Schriever. Uh, Jeff, could we have that uh, film now, please? Colonel Staff foresaw that if man was to travel into space, he would need to get outside his vehicle, either to work on it or to bail out back to Earth in case of emergency. This new endeavor, Project Excelsior, led by Kittinger, would set out to discover how man might survive such a life-threatening ordeal. Project Excelsior was on the far edges of high-altitude research. What Joe Kittinger wanted to do with Project Excelsior was go to 100,000 feet above the surface of the Earth in an open gondola, jump out, free fall back to Earth. 
This was a notion that uh, no one had ever contemplated before. The secret was to find a way to free fall safely down to an altitude where the opening shock of the parachute would not be fatal. We did a whole series of dummy drops up to 110,000 feet. First of all, defined the problem, and we found out that without stabilization, that a man free falling from very high altitude could enter a violent spin, and this could be fatal to a man. So we ended up looking at how do you prevent this from happening? The breakthrough came with the invention of a multi-stage parachute by Air Force engineer Francis Beaupre. It was designed to get the person safely, but as quickly as possible, down from the minus 100 degree atmosphere to a much warmer, safer altitude. 17 seconds after bailout, a small five-foot drogue chute would open stabilizing the jumper to free fall, feet first, down to 18,000 feet, where the main chute could be safely deployed. To add to the danger, Kittinger would rise in an open gondola to ensure easy bailout from the vehicle. The only thing between him and the hostile space was his pressure suit and several warm layers of clothing. The box pack strapped to his suit contained his oxygen supply, survival gear, and several cameras. In November 1959, Kittinger and the Excelsior gondola were ready. The Air Force was extremely reluctant to proceed. Stat was the reason we could do it. He went to bat for us. We launched near a little town called, it had an interesting name, it's called Truth or Consequences, New Mexico. I always thought that was pretty appropriate because if we didn't have the truth, we we're going to have to bear the consequences. Despite the fact the project had little money, it was run with all the precision of a Cape Canaveral countdown. On November 16, 1959, after the 1,000 item chinger was cleared was cleared to go. The balloon rose and the pressure suit inflated perfectly on schedule at 40,000 feet. At 76,000 feet, he made the final preparations to jump, but somehow, horribly, the box strapped to him was stuck to his seat. I couldn't stand up. I was trapped in the gondola. And I'd done this a hundred times in altitude chamber, so it was, it was kind of distressing to me that all of a sudden I'm ready to go and I, I can't stand up. With a huge effort, Kittinger wrenched himself loose and stepped over into the abyss. In struggling, he had inadvertently armed the parachute release timer. So when I jumped out of the gondola, instead of free falling for 16 seconds before this small stabilization shootout, I only fell two seconds. And this chute deployed and not having sufficient velocity wrapped around my neck. Kittinger then entered the dreaded flat spin, turning at 120 revolutions per minute. He lost consciousness. At 18,000 feet, his main canopy opened and tangled with the drogue chute still around his neck. 
when his reserve popped out, it also initially fouled around the main canopy. There was a great mess, but luckily, due to a, the foresight of Francis Beaupre, who had put reduced strength shroud lines on the main canopy, it broke away, the reserve deployed, and Kittinger landed safely, very luckily, on the White Sands. Barely conscious, Kittinger had miraculously survived the dreaded flat spin. Crushed by the system failure, he immediately resolved to make a second jump. When I landed, there was a whole bevy of people that said, let's cancel. We came very close to, Kitting to killing Kittinger, and let's cancel. Uh, but Dr. Stapp went to bat for us again. Kittinger launched Excelsior II a month later. This time, the mission was a total success. From 74,700 feet, the chute worked like a dream, bringing Kittinger safely and securely to Earth. Uh, the, the last jump was 102,800 feet. Obviously, I made it. <laughs> it, was, it was a big difference and to me, 100 on the, that jump, because I always figured if something happened on the, the lower jumps, that something went wrong with the pressure suit, that I had a chance to, to live. But from 102,000 feet, if something happens to that pressure suit, you're dead. And that's not a very comforting thought. Uh, I had trouble with my right pressure suit glove on the way up, and that wasn't very comforting, because you know, if one thing's wrong, what's, going to, what's the next thing going to be? But when I got there, I had to sit there for 11 minutes. And I had time to look out at the horizon and see the, the black sky overhead, see the thunderheads uh, 300, 400 miles away. Uh, it, it was a heck of an experience for me. But as beautiful as it was, I was in awe of the fact that it's deadly because it's just like having arsenic all around you because if you're exposed to that vacuum, you're dead. So it's beautiful, but it's hostile. And that's what I told the folks on the ground, that we'll, we'll never conquer space. It's beautiful but we'll never be able to live there. And that's the truth because it's, just, it's not conducive to, to humans without the adequate protection. On my uh, last jump, uh, I free fell for four minutes and 36 seconds. Uh, the chute opened at 18,000 feet and I uh, landed uh, on the desert uh, elated. Uh, I was elated because uh, we had demonstrated we could do it. And I was elated because I had the great team of people that were supporting me that, that made it possible for me to be there. Um, we accomplished exactly what we set out to do. We, we were trying to develop a system to provide means of high altitude escape. Uh, we did not do it to set records. That was the last thing in our mind was to set records, but to gather the data that we needed. Um, six years later, uh, by the way, this, this parachute system, the stabilization chute, was accepted by the Air Force and, and incorporated. And six years later, there was a guy by the name of Bill Weaver who was flying an SR-71 at 80,000 feet at Mach 3.18. And the airplane came apart, and he got out of it, and the free fell down and survived because he had that stabilization parachute that we developed for him. Uh, today, every ejection seat in the world, including the Russians, use a small five-foot diameter stabilization parachute that we developed on Stargazer. So 
all of us that were associated are really proud that, that what we did did accomplish something. Uh, unfortunately, they, NASA didn't use the system. The uh, people on the Challenger could have survived if they had had one of our parachutes on board. Uh, that, was un that was unfortunate that they did not because they were still alive when they hit. But I had a great team of people uh, made possible by the dedication of Dr. Stapp. Uh, I, I end up having a, a wonderful career in the United States Air Force, 29 years, made possible by great people that crewed the airplanes and provided the technical support that, that they do for the Air Force, plus the great team that I had here at Wright Field. So I've, I've been blessed, and the sky is still my office. I still fly airplanes, I still fly balloons, I'm still vertical, I'm still happy, and I still remember the 23rd Psalm. <laughs>